Genius, it takes a lot to get on my show. Genius, you're probably someone we'd like to know. You're really good at stuff, you probably like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius, get on to my show. Howdy folks, welcome to Living with a Genius. I'm your host, Omar Crook. What do you guys think of my fancy new theme song? I love it. I have Gregory Geiger to thank for that. He's a terrific colleague, a, a wonderful composer, and a terrific voice teacher. So if you want to learn how to sing or you want to improve the voice that you already have, why don't you go to laclassical.com and book yourself a voice lesson. On this episode, I have Blair Tyndall. She's the author of a book called Mozart in the Jungle, which came out in 2005 and is now a hit TV series on Amazon. I love the series. It stars Gael Garcia Bernal, who's one of my favorite actors. And Blair and I had a really interesting conversation. I hope that you enjoy it. And as always, thanks for listening. I grew up in Chapel Hill. North in Chapel Carolina. Hill. And you said, uh, when we met previously, you said your dad was teaching there? Is that? My father was a professor of uh, Southern history, sp uh -huh. specifically black history of South Carolina. Uh-huh. Okay. And uh, your mom, was she in music at all? or? Well, both my parents were the typical amateurs of the early 20th century. They were born in 1921. Everybody mm -hmm. played the piano, not mm -hmm. all that well, but, yeah, yeah. you know, we had stuff. They would sit down, and my father would unfortunately sing a lot. <laughs> <laughs> he had been, this just sounds like something out of some sort of gothic novel, but he grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, uh -huh. and they had this mortuary up on the hill, which I'm, I, I have seen an awful lot awful lot of dead tendrils in uh, yeah yeah and they they sponsored a boy choir it was like one of the big civic things in town so my dad uh sang in this boy choir and they even took them to the 1939 world's fair as they were an act there so okay he got very into music that way okay and then why why didn't he pursue music instead you know um because this other thing interested him i a see lot. I don't think he was particularly talented. Was it. it the civil rights movement that really kind of... Oh, this is way before. Way before that. So he really predated... Well, his family uh, ran a hardware store mm -hmm. in Greenville, Greenville mm -hmm. Hardware. Mm -hmm. And he noticed when he got home from high school every day that the um, black son of the delivery man was already there. And he said, how do you get home from school so much earlier? And the kid said, we don't have a school. And he just, you know, came from a fairly privileged background. So he, after that, he devoted his life to that. And he was one of the three people, one of, only one of them was black, uh, who made black history an academic subject in the 40s and 50s. Wow. You have to remember, there were, it was very hard for a black person at that time to get a PhD and get an academic career going. Did it cause trouble for your dad uh, around town? Bad. I mean, not too much. Did, did no. you grow up feeling that at all? Oh, well, Chapel Hill's extremely liberal. Well, I see. He was always kind of a, an academic hero. I see. So it community. wasn't out of the ordinary at the time. Oh, not at all. Huh. No. That's interesting. Um, and... I read in the book that you, um, was it in, in um, grade school that you picked up the oboe because of your because of where your name fell in, in the alphabet? Right. So That's uh, a true story? Oh, yeah. So in the sixth grade, they have the band. That's when they assign you band instruments. We didn't have a string program or an orchestra yeah. of any kind. Yeah. And they uh, piled everybody into a room together, and you chose your instrument but they went down the list in alphabetical order I was third from the end and they had oboes and bassoons and I was a pretty small kid so the choice was obvious that's unbelievable yes and then um <laughs> and you just 
fell in love with it or you just did it because you could or I mean what I, I mean I guess the reason I ask is that <laughs> you know I, I, you had in my estimation a tremendous career as an instrumentalist um, and it's always I don't know the people that I have on the show I, I, it seems like the common thread is um, a singular passion that seems to be the thing that gets people from um, one place to the top of the hill. And it seems like you made it to the top of the hill without the, this really like overwhelming um, uh, passion. Uh, not passion, but uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I kind know? of hate the instrument, but I've been playing it for a very long time, and I play it very well. So I think I'll stick with it. See, that's how <laughs> I started, That's how I got into, mu into music myself. I just... Um, like I mentioned downstairs in the kitchen, I uh, started singing when I was really pretty pretty old. I mean, I was 25 when I started studying music. I didn't read music until that. that oh wow! You know, at all, and uh, I I did it more because it gave me attention, and I was really good at it. That is absolutely why I did it. Um, you know, there were the one thing I I noticed when I went away to an arts boarding school for high school is that all of us had serious problems at home huh. and we had all finally gotten some recognition as people you know we were all the nerds of our classes right we were, we were just the bottom of the barrel right right did what, you kind of live in your dad's shadow or what what was the what propelled you to to fall into that category oh gosh my my mother was uh, quite the alcohol enthusiast oh you know, i the see 1960s was, she a mean, was she a mean drunk very or? much so oh, yeah boy okay she's still alive but i don't think she'll she would, she podcast. <laughs> She's turning 95 next month. Okay. So she'd have a few drinks and you'd know that you'd have to. Oh, she'd have a, she weighed 85 pounds and she'd have, she'd have a, at least a, a, a quart of heaven hell bourbon a day. Wow. So, okay. you know, there was, I think a lot of women at the, on the cusp of the women's movement were mm -hmm. really having trouble dealing with it. And mm -hmm. she, she was already older than she was already in her forties. I see. Um, you know, my father was extremely uh, he was an extremely nice man, at, but he was very busy with his career. So that's how he dealt with her alcoholism. He just worked. He just, but yeah, he he would come home and bury himself in the New York Times and. And would he kind of leave leave? You have siblings, yeah. You have. I have an older brother. An older yeah. brother. Mm -hmm. And how did he react to? Well, he went away to high school as well. He went up to Exeter. Um, I see. So I I think it was. I mean, I know it was very difficult for him yeah. as well. But, you know, the thing that I found out is there are a lot of people like me out yeah. there. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And at least we found something that we enjoyed where we had camaraderie. We were no longer, you know, the nerds of our classes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we got to go to these fun conventions and mm -hmm. trips and band contests. And uh, mm -hmm. as band campy as that sounds, I think it, it really saved a lot of us. And most of the people I went to high school with have had very interesting lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I had the same. I mean, I loved choir tour. That was that was the, those were the best times of my life, going to Europe and around the country and singing, you know, with Andrea Bocelli and and the Pops and all that stuff. I I totally, and I had you know my parents divorced when I was four, and my dad just split basically. So wow. I think. And we went from being very affluent in Mexico to being to moving in with my grandparents in Redlands, California, and um, and I think I've looked for um, role models and like father figures as well. Um, so I, I totally get what you're saying, and in that way, music really saved me. Uh, and it sounds like you had a similar experience, and I think that's that you get hooked on that. And once I was in it, 
and playing with major orchestras and such, when you get to a certain level, there you do even though my instrument is very challenging and I, I just want to play baseball with it sometimes because yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of the whole reed making problem. Yeah, yeah, you have yeah. To make that was fascinating reads. in the book. Yeah. Um, you know, once you're doing it, and the fir- for example, the first concert I played as a substitute with the New York Philharmonic was Mahler Sixth, yeah. Giuseppe Sinopoli. Wow. And uh, it was his premiere there, and he's unfortunately passed away. But to be in the middle of something like that, it's a visceral experience, and it's just incredible. No, absolutely. And playing with people of that caliber. Absolutely. So there is, I mean, it's not that I hate being a musician, quite the opposite. Um, yeah. It, it's been, a, you know, I played the Rite of Spring with Leonard Bernstein. Oh, my God. And I just watched today on YouTube the uh, um, there was a clip of him recording uh, "I Like to Be in America," you know, from West Side Story, yes. America. Oh my God, it's this live, you know, it's the actual take that they used in the recording, and they filmed it with like four cameras, and it's this beautiful shot. And I I wish I had been uh, in music then, you know, or or the right age to work with him. I'm really I played with him twice, and the other one was surprisingly Mozart, which was a lot less fun with him than yeah, yeah, the right yeah. of spring. Yeah. He didn't really, at the end, have that much God, of a beat pattern, so Mozart was difficult oh, I see. So yeah, sure. at the end of his life. I see. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, the other thing that I noticed about the book um, was that, and, and we share this as well, uh, you seem really hard on yourself. Well, my editor encouraged that, because if you're, if you're reading a, a, an autobiography and you're rah-rah about yourself, you're not a very sympathetic character. And especially if you're going to point out other people's foibles. That's right. So I thought that was pretty important. Yeah, but do you, I mean, deep down, so I have, I don't know if it's because of my childhood or or what, I know that that's what attracted me to music, like I said before, it really gave me some status very quickly. Um, but I, when I... I guess I guess what I want to ask is how do you did you come to a point when you separated your own self-worth from the performance that you've given because I I had a I went through years of just feeling really badly about myself when I didn't sing well. No, it's the, I don't think anybody ever gets to that point. Yeah, okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I yeah, I just had a bad really bad experience this last summer in South America. Um and it and I, I it didn't go well for me, and it uh, yeah it's hard to it, it creates depression and um, well you I mean you are how you perform I mean as a musician it's it's you so isn't it's, there a it's, way around that I mean it, uh, I think the minute there's a way around that you're gonna play very poorly do you think so yeah I mean I know a couple of people who are like that and I can't stand their playing and I can't stand them. You mean the the type of people that just are okay with whatever happens? Yeah, I mean, these are people pretty high up in the profession, and they just kind of, both of the ones I'm thinking of are violinists, but they can just scrape it out one night and collect the big bucks, phone it in, and Uh they couldn't care less, Uh and pay for their fancy condo and fancy strad. Yeah, it's funny that they are the outliers, though. The business really does attract people who hinge everything on their performing. Uh, and I, maybe that is a maybe that's an element that's necessary to get to that level. I mean, I I don't know. So it's kind of feels like kind of a trap, though. I think it's different in a business where you're an executive or something, where you know you do have some sort of performance, but your performance isn't coming 
from your heart and your brain directly, you know, you're yeah. making calculated decisions and such. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing I've noticed about you, to just I don't just kind of a left turn, but um, I've met you twice now, and both times I came away feeling that you're like super steady, super even, and the oboe to me seems like the most uptight um, instrument out there. Just to actually make a good sound out of it, with the pressure that you have to apply with your with your lips and your mouth and the, the I mean it it's it just seems like it's the opposite like you're the you're opposite of the instrument well I've played it for 45 years now yeah so you, you sort of learn to all kinds of emergencies which in our minds are like houses burning down around you yeah 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 happen when you're on stage so you just kind of learn to you know concentrate and and fix your sights on getting done what you need to get done yeah 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 yeah, and you're still playing. You said you've got something coming up. Yeah, I have. Um, I have this great new renaissance of a career. I'm playing at the inaugural concert for something called the Tippet Rise Art Center in Fishtail, Montana. Oh my God! Yeah, it's this beautiful place a billionaire has built with all of this gorgeous large-scale outdoor art. Mm-hmm. They've built, you know, a dormitory for all the artists, and you know, they have like organic chefs and everything. It's going to be really fun. Yeah, yeah. So, but when I, I found out a couple of days ago, I w- I'm not only playing the two Brandenburgs, which are kind of an endurance contest for any wind flare, mm-hmm. um, but I'm also playing the Schumann romances, which are the same. So I'm going to need an ambulance at the end of it because it's all at the same, on the same concert. <laughs> That's amazing. But it'll be fun. One of the great things about it is um, the artistic director is Chris O'Reilly, mm-hmm. the pianist who's an NPR host for From the Top. Mm-hmm. We've known each other for over 30 years. Did you play back in New York together? or? No, he was never really in New York. We did summer music festivals like Monadnock Music in New Hampshire, you know, and we all live in these houses together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've known him all this time, and he invited me. He, he finally read the book recently and was a big fan of it. Yeah. And um, Have you seen an, a big uptick since the show's come on of oh, sales? Huge. I mean, yes. that's, that's, <laughs> a, big, that's a, a big thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, it still hasn't sold an enormous amount, but a lot, and now there's an audio book, too. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, and the book was you uh, was published in 2005? Right, and the paperback came out in 2006. In 2006. Um, and we've had the TV deal. Uh, for people who don't know, the book was made into an Amazon Studios series by the Jason Schwartzman and the rest and of Roman, his family. And uh, Roman Coppola. And, uh-huh. They're first cousins. Right. But the creator is really Jason. So he, he came and optioned the book five days after it came out. Oh, he did? Oh, it's so been that long. So we've had a deal all this time. And he just, they're from a musical family. Yeah. Uh, their grandfather was Carmine Coppola mm-hmm. of NBC Symphony. And their great uncle, who's actually in the show at age 99, is the conductor Anton Coppola. Really? He's hilarious. And it's, what does he play in the show? He plays an old retired oboist telling stories. And I know who he's patterned after. I didn't actually talk to Jason about it, but it, it is shot in his apartment, the interior, but the outside is shot in this apartment old old apartment complex at 86th and broadway where this oboist joseph marx lived so I, I, he's obviously a you know patterned off this wow. old oboist joseph marx and i went to some parties at his house back in the day he would this guy's would be like 120 by now yeah 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 uh, tell me the tell me about the day when uh jason schwartzman got a hold of you how did that happen well he didn't get hold of me actually i didn't meet him until the show was already shooting you're kidding <laughs> no he uh he, 10 years later 
Yeah, so he made the deal with my Hollywood agent. That's a sentence I never thought I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> from from the pit at the New York City Ballet to I have a Hollywood agent. <laughs> and then we just he just kept renewing the option every year and just trying and trying to get it made. We finally got an HBO deal uh-huh. because he, of course, had that great show on HBO, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bored to Death. I yeah. was completely hooked on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they passed on us for Girls, the Lena Dunham series, which sure. actually makes sense because it's kind of similar with a female protagonist in New York. Sure. And uh, I like the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and then, then it was Dead in the Water, and I thought, well, that was fun, you know. And then Amazon came about, and Amazon was a whole – the whole streaming thing was new. I, I did know about Netflix and Arrested Development already. Yeah, but, sure. So the show ended up being in the second season of Amazon Originals, and – I just think they're doing a great job. I do too. So they, when you got that, what what happened when you when, How did you find out that it was greenlit finally? Um, my agent just called me yeah. and said, uh, "Guess what? We have a deal with Amazon Studios. You'll have to sign off on the pilot." Yeah. And so I read the pilot, and it was fantastic. Oh, um, so you didn't have any part in writing the pilot at all? No, a, a guy named Alex Timbers. He's sort of a Broadway wunderkind mm-hmm. uh, director, but he had actually never written anything like this before so I I opened it up thinking oh my god what are we gonna find and it, I had talked to him on the phone a couple of times because mm-hmm. I already knew him from playing on Broadway mm-hmm. it was great so yeah, yeah, yeah. I said off you go and then you know I got to see it a few days before I wasn't there when they shot it but uh, I got to see it and it was just an amazing thing to see this come to life in the fantastic way it did with yeah. the Coppola family making it yeah no kidding and, and you're um, were you living in LA at the time yeah, I've been here for eleven years. Oh, you have. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. And and no, but I they had, shoot. I had to get the heck out of New York when the book came out. <laughs> that was it. No, I knew I had to leave. Really? Yeah. I mean, it really created that much controversy. Well, I I really only went back. I had been invited after I I went to Stanford, mm-hmm. and when the dot com yeah. bust came, yeah. I was offered a show in New York, so I went back. Mm-hmm wrote the book mm-hmm. and then it seemed like a good time to leave <laughs> wow like when you got that gig going back to new york what, did you feel it uh, uh were you kind of sad to go back or what was the how did you feel no, about i was going really back? glad to have a job because yeah. I, I had had a you know a mainstream chain newspaper journalism job yes. I had, and i was the first call sub in the san francisco symphony and mm-hmm. i was very active as a musician there um, Did you like living in San Francisco or around around that area? Yeah, it was great. Yeah. It was it was really nice. But mm-hmm. I I kind of always wanted to come to Southern California, and explore this. Mm-hmm. And when I was writing the book, I had bought screenwriting books and learned about the three act structure. And oh, I thought, sure. you know, my my first idea of writing the book was I had found out all this information that had never been put together or published about the rise of culture in late twentieth century America. Mm-hmm. And then I knew nobody was going to read that, so I it paralleled the years of my life. So I made it into a combination of journalistic expose and yeah. memoir. Yeah, I, I that see that in the book. Like there are giant, big sections of um, history and the rise of music and philanthropy, and and then you it did. was like and yeah, here's yeah, what yeah. it looked like, like from, two different from books. the inside. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Just to make it readable, and then also I thought if I'm gonna you know, I didn't get a huge advance, but if I'm going to take all this time writing this, let's see if I can make it appealing to television or film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how long did it take you to write the book from start to finish? Well, you generally get a deal in advance for a year, so I was paralyzed for a month, and then oh it took 11 God. months. Wow, okay. Um, 
what yeah we talked downstairs a little bit about the controversy surrounding the book and just recently on facebook you posted that question because i guess you're including gonna, it in your memoirs yeah i'm writing a second memoir yeah and i never understood what the i can understand why a couple of people were upset particular people yeah yeah. Just a couple, though. Right. And what I was really trying to do was uh, celebrate the hard work that people do when they don't really get any credit. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that really drove that home to me was um, I write sometimes for the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And my music editor there, who goes to concerts all the time, mm -hmm. couldn't figure out who one of the main characters was. And it's somebody he hears play probably twice a month and has for 20 years. You know, like, And she's very distinctive looking person who looks uh -huh. like nobody else in town who plays that instrument and I'm just thinking are you you really don't look at us do you <laughs> I mean we really are anonymous yeah 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 <laughs> but the, I'll tell you that the thing when you posted that question on Facebook I had, I had an answer myself okay and you you kind of uh, hinted at it downstairs I found that I, I think besides the particular controversies uh, in naming a couple names, yeah, outright. Besides those obvious well, things, you do the crime, you do the time. Yeah, that's it. And I'm about to be featured the same way in somebody else's oh, book. Oh, you are. So, How do you know? How do you uh, hear? Because she's featuring me and her. The publisher is featuring me in, in the publicity for the book. Like this book is like Mozart in the Jungle, and then I offered to blurb it, and she wouldn't take it. So I know I'm in the book. Oh, it's like a rebuttal to your book. She's way? not in my book. Oh. So. Oh. Okay. I don't know. We'll find out. That's weird. But, you know, if somebody has a complaint against you and you actually did something that they have a complaint about, it's fine, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. have to try to behave appropriately, and if you don't, then... Yeah. And, of course, people perceive things differently. Yeah, right, right. The 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 thing that I found about the book is that it... I, I would imagine that... I think it just goes against the... Um, the idea of the the patriarchal sense of sexual mores, I think. I think I I would imagine that people f find it shocking that women behave a lot like men do traditionally, um, and and then when you put that um, within the context of classical music, which is erudite and rarefied and all of these you know intellectualized, maybe that's what people found shocking. I mean. I, what do you think? I, you got a lot of answers on Facebook. What what resonates with you? Why do you think? Um, I think people, well, that, that might be part of it. Because uh -huh. um, I am of a certain age. We grew up at a time when we really didn't have that much say. And it, again, I grew up on the cusp of women's liberation and such. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of bad things happened to us in music school because there really weren't any rules and you yeah, have one-on-one -on -one yeah. lessons behind closed doors and that is not so many people have been accused of that who probably haven't done anything to so I feel bad about that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but uh, it's interesting now we're in the age of gender and race fluidity yeah, like everything yeah. fluidity so yeah. I think when you watch a show I'm writing a comedy about something else now Mm -hmm. And one of for, the for television for TV, yeah. Uh -huh. So one of the shows I've been watching is Broad City, mm. and those two girls act a lot like teenage boys. And my sense of humor is very much like that of a teenage yeah, boy. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> a friend and I went and saw Pop Star last night. It's coming out, I think, on Saturday. Uh huh. So it, it's a comedy about a Justin Bieber-like character on tour, and it's it's just like very 
sort of um, uh, adolescent humor, and I loved every minute of it. Yeah, it was yeah, hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm laughing. My, I'm in my 50s, and I'm laughing my ass off. And, you know, everybody around me is looking at me like, shouldn't you behave? <laughs> so this is, a, this is a real renaissance for you as far as your second career goes, yeah? I mean, well, are you are you writing for for TV primarily now, besides what you're doing with the newspapers? Well, I have four projects going. Okay. So I, I signed with the Gersh Agency here in Los Angeles. Um, when well, was they're that? in New York, too. When, when? When, when did that happen? Uh, about a year ago. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I uh, had been working since then on this comedy with a co-writer, mm-hmm. and I've got my journalism degree mm-hmm. at <clears throat> 40. Mm-hmm. Well, at that's all right. Stanford. Yeah. <laughs> so I met this, this guy who's a professional actor who's also a writer at a Stanford alumni and entertainment event. Mm-hmm. And it's great because we're pretty far apart in age. Mm-hmm. Um, each of us has things, the other one. Different perspectives. We yeah. have different perspectives and different mm-hmm. strengths. So it's it's been great. Mm-hmm. And we went in to uh, an unnamed production company yesterday Yeah, and pitched our, it was my very first time pitching a project. Yeah, yeah. And they were, you know, it was really interesting. Fortunately, it was somebody I knew. Okay. So it was not uncomfortable. But, yeah, yeah. Um, did you feel it went well? I thought it went really well, but That's you good. know these things succeed just uh, yeah. a little percentage of the time. I know, and who knows why? And it's a mystery to me. And then I have a second memoir because it's been quite an interesting road. Mm-hmm. After, it's been written about a little bit, a little bit what happens after you write a controversial memoir. But mm-hmm. most people don't have the wonderful happy ending that I had with mm-hmm. having a hit TV show that won two Golden Globes yeah. coming out. And uh, I was reunited with the Golden Globe that the show, well, that tells you what the production company was. But yeah. So I got to see it and admire it and take a selfie with it yesterday. That's fantastic. Um, so that just doesn't happen. It's like having a, a wedding at the end of a really sad drama or something. <laughs> <laughs> so I have that. I had gone to Bali years ago mm-hmm. and filmed a like a sizzle reel promotional video mm-hmm. with... Uh, myself really I didn't go with anybody except the I met up there with the UCLA's professor of Balinese music how long ago was this this was 2007 oh okay so it's a show that's like Anthony Bourdain's travel shows but instead of food it's ethnic music and dance Uh uh-huh so I don't know if I'd at this point whether I'd be the person uh to host it or not yeah um I now have some acting experience yeah yeah you know we could always find somebody else but I think it would be a show that people would enjoy sure got that then uh, the fourth thing, well, there was a mem- second memoir. And then the fourth thing was uh, my father was a professor of black history. Mm-hmm. And I played the s- uh, soundtracks of all the Spike Lee movies. And mm-hmm. my dad said, you have to tell Spike Lee about this this guy who is a black Civil War hero, hmm. really impressive man um, named uh, Robert Smalls. Mm-hmm. And then I never saw Spike Lee again. <laughs> Although I think I could probably I bet you call could. him up now. Yeah, 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 exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so I'm going to work on that. That's the next thing I'm going to And you don't on. do any session work here in town now? I wish I did, but I seem to be on everybody's S list. So wow. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah, I can't get arrested here. That's, a, well, <laughs> not always a bad thing, I guess. Um, tell me about your uh, input on the show. What, what is it that, I, I mean, I saw, I see in the credits that you um, consult for the show. Do you yeah. do any writing? Do you do... And you said you have some acting experience, too. Is that involved? I'm, I'm in the show. You are? Yeah. And strangely, uh, because the series that I'm pitching is about ushers, they didn't know this when they wrote the part for me. They made me an usher. 
in the show. So I have this scene with Gabriel, I'm Gabriel, (laughs) with Gael Garcia Bernal, Uh Uh um, where he's coming into the hall. And uh, is it which season uh, is it? It's season two, episode nine. Okay. So I immediately went on a diet after that. (laughs) Oh my God, (laughs) when I saw myself. Oh, and they put me in a white blouse. what, What is it like working with all those folks? I mean, Oh, they're so nice, and they're so, you know, they're very deferential and very concerned that they're not doing it right. Yeah. You know, they worked really hard. How about Gael with his conducting? Tell me about he's that. Actually, he's actually pretty good, yeah. and he worked very hard on it. There's some sort of weird delay, and I played in the orchestra a couple of times. Fourth, I played, quote, air quotes, yeah, yeah. fourth French horn. Yeah. Um, you play French horn, too? No. Oh, okay. I was going to say, Jesus, that's the no, other every, instrument that's impossible to play. Everybody in the orchestra was, um, well, it's a pretty easy instrument to fake. To fake, yeah. Looking like you play. Yeah, Obviously, exactly. you wouldn't want to hear me. Yeah, yeah, By yeah. The, end of the, the end of the shoot, I could actually play the eight notes. The guy next to me taught me to play the eight notes. Wow. I mean, that's not an easy instrument. Well, we were there all day. <laughs> I didn't say it sounded good or got it right every time. <laughs> you know, I think I they mean, were getting I took it all day to learn it. I mean, jeez. Low horn, and I was just blatting away down there. <laughs> they were probably, we can't say anything to her. She wrote it. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> um, so, Gaia, you know, there's some sort of weird delay because the soundtrack is already recorded. Yeah, of course, yeah. And um, then we're pretending like we're playing, although yeah. we're actually making the noise. And then I think by the time when we're actually playing with him and Malcolm McDowell also conducts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought um, his conducting is pretty good. Well, I thought both of them were pretty yeah. good. I mean, it seems very uh, I've legit. worked with worse. I, we both have worked with worse, I'm sure. Well, that's, what, that's <laughs> whenever I look at the comments online, yeah, they should have gotten a conducting coach. They had like Ransom Wilson teaching them. They wow. had all these famous people teaching them. And they, they really put in the work and did a good job. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was just some sort of weird delay because you've got three different things. You've got it on screen, you've got us pretending to play, and then you've got the recording. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Gael conducted um, the L.A. Phil. He actually um, came out on stage and conducted uh, for the, the LA Hollywood Phil. Bowl yeah. so, a scene. And yeah. it's, it's very funny because the stage manager who's cast in the show, who's pushing him out on oh, stage, is Dudamel. I saw that. It was so, so funny. It, Dudamel, I love how he says, he says uh, oh, I hope... I hope you come here because we hate the conductor. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because whenever I've been around my L.A. Phil friends, they're like, we don't hate him. We no, love him. <laughs> no, he's great. I've, I've performed with him a few times, and he's fantastic. Yeah, he's and then, you know, he was afraid. I'm old friends with the CEO of the of the orchestra, mm-hmm. Deborah Borda, because mm-hmm. I was playing in the Philharmonic when she was there, mm-hmm. and uh, she's a musician. She plays the viola. Huh, uh-huh. She was saying he's kind of afraid to watch it. I'm trying to make him watch it. He was afraid. Oh, it's so funny. And finally he watched it, and now he and Gael are, you know, bosom buddies. They love each other. Oh, that's... that's... They, like, they have a bromance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can... Yeah, you can kind of see that on screen, actually. They, he, I thought I, I thought Gustavo was really, really good. So natural, really funny. Well, he ad-libbed that line. Too. Really? That was not scripted. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's, <laughs> my, that's one of my favorite parts of the show, actually. And then the there was the episode with the four musicians, Emmanuel Axe. I couldn't Alan believe Gilbert. that. How did that come together? I mean, who got them all together? Well, they had asked Joshua Bell yeah, the yeah, first yeah. season. Mm-hmm. So they were all happened. I think they had tried to get Itzhak Perlman mm-hmm. in on it. He w- probably maybe opened the book and found he wasn't that Painted popular. Painted in, in, <laughs> yeah. in the best light. So yeah. he ended up not doing it. But the four of them just happened to be in town at the same time. I mean, it was Alan Gilbert. Yeah. Long, long. Uh, long, long, uh, Emmanuel Axe, and Joshua, and Josh Bell. Yeah, is there somebody else? That's it. No, that was it. Wow, I couldn't. Oh, oh, it. and the, there's the 
the famous actor Dermot Mulroney. Oh who yeah, yeah, actually yeah. Does who actually play plays the cello. the cello very well. Yeah, I saw I, as soon as he as soon as he started, it's like, oh, he he knows how to play the cello. He's and really doing that. I take it back. I have had one studio session. I, I'm on the theme music for the show. Oh, you are. Yeah. Who composed that? Oh, a wonderful composer named Roger Neal. And do you you recorded it here in New York? Here at here. West Studios. Oh, I see. The great thing now is I'm getting called to do speaking engagements. I have one at Peabody Conservatory next year where I'm also going to play. I have one in Florida. With That's amazing. And do you have an agent for, for speaking engagements? Too? No, is that I'm, different? I actually... No, I, I did it when the book first came out, but because my message was not something music schools really wanted their students to hear, except for the most enlightened of music school deans who, who realized, you know, I could come in and have a positive message about yeah. if... You know, there are all these things you can do to make your time after graduation actually work. <laughs> I was really surprised about that in the book, actually, um, because I went to a state school. I went to Cal State Fullerton. There are all sorts of uh, requirements for graduation which have nothing to do with music. And I hadn't really put together the fact that there are conservatories that only that give you such a limited general education. Oh, there was only, outside of languages, there was only one academic course at my college. I mean, I can't. And it, fortunately, it was really good, and I, I still remember so much about it. Yeah, it's funny because I think in the job market, when you say you have a music degree, most people uh, think of that, but that isn't the norm. I think most people with music degrees have pretty good educations outside of music as well. Well, uh, there are certain conservatories where that is true because mm -hmm. they're inside a regular academic institution like Indiana University right, right. or Eastman School of Music is inside, I believe it's the University of Rochester, Oberlin. Oberlin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but a lot, like I went to Manhattan School of Music. It's and just music. It's just music. And then I went to high school at the North Carolina School of the Arts, which is part of the University of North Carolina system. Mm -hmm. And it was high school. It was the beginning of the school and it was sort of the beginning of the arts being an actual thing you could do possibly mm -hmm. do for a living mm -hmm. so they really didn't have it together yet and we had such limited academics because we were there was I think there were 12 people in my graduating class did your did your parents have any uh anything to say about that or was your wasn't your dad worried that you were going to get such a monocular well that's the education? thing they just never asked and um you know I think they had their own stuff going on at home and the same was true of almost everybody I went to high school with. It's changed a lot at the School of the Arts now. I think they've really expanded their programs, and pe people have gone on and become doctors and mm -hmm. still they're musicians as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was not an option. Like One of my favorite scenes was that we were going off on the bus, and it was like the one time we ever had a chaperone. We were free to roam around and do drugs and wow. sleep with each other, but yeah. the one time we had a chaperone was on the bus to the SAT test. And one of the ballerinas said, why is this test called SAT? Because it's on Saturday? <laughs> we had no preparation. We all bombed. Wow. <laughs> you know, I don't remember what my verbal score was good because I just learned that growing up. But, yeah. you know, we had almost no math. Yeah, we yeah, had yeah. Algebra and geometry were required by the state. Yeah, and everybody thinks it. musicians are just math wizards. Well, we might be if we had exposure to it. That's right. So later I went to Columbia and took everything that, I should have taken earlier in life and got at least through calculus one and statistics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I went back to school as an older person. I've been, I went to film school in my 40s. I mean, I did the same thing. Um, and I think, like your story, it, I, it, I think we share this too. It's just a product of thinking one day, what the hell am I going to do? 
Yeah. Like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I know that I can't sing for the rest of my life. I know that my voice is going to go. It doesn't last forever. And I'm still going to going to be of working age. Um, and I think that's part of what this podcast is. I'm, you know, I'm just throwing the line out there to see if maybe this is my next thing. I don't know. Like journalism has been for you. Yeah. Well, I, I knew that journalism was going to evolve into writing books or entertainment related mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons I decided to go in that direction was that I took this aptitude test given by the Johnson O'Connor Research Foundation, which doesn't measure what you think you're good at, like uh-huh. Myers-Briggs, because I didn't know. Well, yeah, and Myers-Briggs is a little, you know. It's so they actually give you these physical tests to do that measure everything from manual dexterity, mm-hmm. which of course is great if you want to be a doctor, mm-hmm. to spatial visualization and various kinds of memories. Um, and I ended up being very high in something they call ideaphoria, mm-hmm. which is that they ask you a question and let you write as fast as you can for 12 minutes and they count up the number of individual or discrete ideas that you come up with. Wow. And I ended up being one of their five highest scores in 80 years for that, which, and I had gone through life thinking I was horribly uncreative. And the other thing was I'd also gone through life thinking I was way at the end of the introversion scale. And mm-hmm. obviously that's not true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, once I had a chance to, you know, spread my wings a little bit. So one of the things that they suggested was journalism I wanted to go back to school so I I applied and much to my surprise got a couple of full scholarships so I went to Stanford yeah yeah at age 39 on a full scholarship that's so great and where was the te- where was the test administered is that something that people can do anywhere or uh, you have to go to one of their testing centers but they're in all the major cities really? I took it in New York but there's one in LA I think there are maybe about 10 of them around the country. And it's uh, you don't have to go to the Scientology Center or anything to get it, it done? It has absolutely nothing to do with <laughs> anything like that. No, this is, this is a non-profit, non-religious yeah. organization. It seemed like a real um, turning point for you, that, that, that just that, thing, that one day. That one day, because I had gone in thinking that I was good at these certain things and terrible at all these other things, and I was wrong on every count in a yeah. big way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think we have, uh, we're similar in that um, you're willing to go in a different direction and try something new. Is that something that most musicians don't uh, fall into? I mean, oh gosh, I've known so many who do. A lot of musicians I know in New York who are quite successful Broadway and symphonic musicians have taken up acting careers. You just have to do something, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, they're they're all on, um, oh, what's the show? The crime show that everybody's on in New York. I can't remember oh, the like name Oh, like CSI or something? No, I can't remember. But oh. it, um, anyway, uh, a lot of them have become actors. Um, people have gone back to school when things things really went down the drain about the time I left. Uh, yeah, yeah, As I yeah. could see that was happening because I was people, there in the like, good days. Did people really turn their backs on you after the book came out? I mean, what what did you have any personal run-ins where people confronted you directly about it or did things just kind of fizzle out for you no uh there were some major run-ins horrible horrible things like what can you talk about it um well when did you know the shoe really dropped oh i knew it was dropping I, i got i left before the book was published yeah i had a gig in charleston reviewing the spoleto festival for the Mm -hmm. local paper and then i took off to california i sold my condo in new york and and just moved out here with a nice, nice little profit from that. So I was, I was smooth, smoothly sailing for a while. And did you know that you were torpedoing your career at the time? Yeah, you did. But I knew, you know, I had already earned a really good pension from my Broadway years, and I just couldn't imagine doing that for the rest of my life. 
they were cutting the sizes of Broadway orchestras, so I don't double and a straight oboe book, only playing oboe and English horn. Mm -hmm. There were going to be fewer of those in the future. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to do something in in addition to being a musician. So Mm -hmm. it's okay. You know, I knew that was going to happen. But it, you know, it it can be very difficult to find freelance work as Mm -hmm. a journalist too. Mm-hmm. And you were confronted personally by some people that were really oh, angry yeah. about it? At, I mean, when I first came out here, I went as somebody's guest to the Recording Musicians Association Party, which is this big thing that used to happen at uh, the Malibu Ranch Convention Center. Mm-hmm. Very opulent, fancy, fancy schmancy mm-hmm. party. It's for all the session players? and Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was immediately confronted by somebody. So I, I had rehearsed what to do, and I just said it's really nice to see you i look forward to seeing you again and went and talked to somebody else wow (laughs) you know i I, it had traveled across the country well it was the book was i had taken myself on a book tour eight thousand mile book tour in my little red convertible by myself so i'd been all over the country but it had nothing to do with players out here it had nothing to do no and that's the interesting thing a a couple of people got got people mixed up like um somebody just heard there was something about me having an affair with a conductor and Mm -hmm. and they somehow assumed it was this guy i've never even heard of who used to conduct the uh pacific symphony i I remember his name (laughs) i never met him never heard of him um so you can see how the game of gossip gets going wow yeah um a lot of people on the other hand emailed me and said boy was i relieved i didn't show up in your book (laughs) well i i feel like i i felt relieved that i wasn't the only one feeling these things you know because i when i tell people i'm an opera singer and that i sing for film and tv and i've traveled around the world it's very it seems very glamorous but it can be really um isolating it can be nerve-wracking it drives people to drink um yeah you know it was for me as a performer i felt the opposite like i felt like wow i'm not the only one that um doesn't feel a thousand percent grateful for it all the time and then when i do feel that way I, I still feel guilty like you know i'm not digging ditches i get to sing songs for a living it's not terrible i, I own a house i mean it's you know <laughs> things have worked out okay um but it's not it's not easy all the time and i maybe that's why i chose to you know i, I had a, a solo career for a few years and an agent and i traveled and i finally settled on 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 just being a chorister because I like the camaraderie. I don't like being alone yeah. all the time. I hate traveling and staying in hotels yeah. for six months. Um, oh, it, it can be rough. It's hard. Being the itinerant uh, opera singer, it's, and you don't end up making that much either. No, no. I've got. I mean, I've got some. I've got two friends, who I three friends who I went to school with. One of them is a star. I mean, he sings at the Met. He sings at La Scala. He sings everywhere. He's he does quite well, but he's on his third marriage, second marriage. Um, I've got a friend who sings at the Met now, um, and I've got a very good friend who subs, uh, who's like a um, cover. He's a cover singer at the uh-huh. Met as a tenor. And uh, I was out t- having drinks with a colleague of mine who's also in the chorus just recently, and he said, you know, I said I was a little down. I said, I, I, I really didn't go to school to become a chorister. You know, you you study and practice to become a principal singer and to be traveling and doing all these things. And, he, and, and my friend looked at me and said, yeah, man, but you know, you've got a wife and kids, you own a house, you've got nice cars and you make more than our f- two friends do. 
who are at the Met right now. I mean, I make more as a chorister. Yeah. Uh, and doing well, studio stuff. That's regular work in your That's home. regular work. And I have six, seven productions a year. I do, I've done maybe 10 tertiary roles uh, in, in an A house with Plaza Domingo. And, uh, you know, but still, you get, you get down. Yeah. You know, especially when you have these failures. I mean, I read, I read in your book and, uh, about how, what was it? Was it your first gig with the Phil? And you were so nervous. I made this I mean, huge mistake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was the first week I'd played with them. Yeah, I made this. Uh, there's one note that's famous among oboists for being just especially hard to articulate it softly. Uh -huh. it's low notes are much harder to play softly on the oboe. Mm -hmm. It's a low C sharp. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I got ready to play it. It was Tchaikovsky Fifth, and there's this beautiful pianissimo woodwind chorale near the end of the last movement. Mm -hmm. So I saw it was A, A, A. C sharp, which mm -hmm. made absolutely no sense because there's no C sharp in the key signature. Mm -hmm. So I, I went for it and I went, I just Splatted made this it. huge honk. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and Klaus Tinstadt was conducting, and he stopped and just glared at me. And then I realized oh it was God. supposed to be a C natural <laughs> on oh top my of it. God, <laughs> no, it was horrible. And then I, I didn't really get it out for the rest of the day. So I, I immediately went to the my oboe was leaking a tiny bit. So. I mean, but it was really my fault. What does that mean? What do you mean? Oh, the pads have to seal. Oh, so I see. So if something isn't sealing, it, it's very hard to get notes out. If they, you know, if it's really bad, they don't come out at all. I see. So I went to him, and by the time the evening performance came around, I had gotten some coaching on, there are things you can do with the oboe for mm -hmm. these low notes that you can stuff up your bell. Like, people have a variety of sponges. Uh, somebody taught me to use the Canadian Club purple velvet really? bag and put it around the bell. Or do both. Uh-huh. So by the time the evening came, and this was before I knew about Enderol, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wish I'd had Enderol that night. <laughs> uh, anyway, it worked. Yeah, it it's, it's funny oh, that, that you mentioned that because I, I went through a period in college. Um, as I said earlier, I was, the, I was like the go-to tenor. I was older than everybody else. I had a, a bigger voice, and I, I had a great amount of talent, just I don't know why. Um, but I went through singing Tamino uh, in college with this terrible stage fright, so much so that it, it sent me to a psychiatrist after, after oh, the fact. Oh, it can fact. be totally debilitating. Totally debilitating. I mean, it, it was, uh, I mean, you, you, feel, you feel panicked, and it's just an awful, awful feeling. And so well, anyway, you still feel panicked when you take it, but at least your body cooperates. Exactly, exactly. So what, what's happened to me is just in the last few years, I developed this weird heart condition. And oh, so now you have to take it. So now I take uh, Atenolol, <laughs> and uh, I take a very low dose, and it really has changed I mean, I, maybe I'm becoming the type of person like these people that you can't stand where I just don't care. I'm like, I'm just going to stand up here and do the best that I can. But it sure beats the the alternative where you feel like you're dying. You just, yeah. you want to literally run off stage. Well, I, I've written extensively about this. I wrote a really long article that's kind of the primary article that gets quoted for the New York Times because I could get... About I stage fright? And, about and Enderol, about beta blockers. Really? So uh, I was it somebody who was able to get musicians to talk about it. You know, I didn't yeah, make why anybody. Is it so, why is it so uh, stigmatized? Well, I think it's less so now that people realize it's such kind of a drug that so many people are on for medical reasons anyway. Yes, yes. I mean, one of the doctors that I spoke to whose research that said something like 10% of the population's on it anyway, you yeah. can't 
yeah. you know for blood pressure for heart problems or, right yeah mm-hmm. angina all kinds of things mm-hmm. the stage fright is an off-label use so it's not one of the uses listed but it's it's a nice side effect and it, it has almost no bad consequences there are a couple of types of uh, conditions where you shouldn't take it mm-hmm. like uh, low blood pressure could mm-hmm. be a problem sure for some reason glaucoma it's a problem i don't know why yeah yeah you'd think um, that it would be good for pressure yeah the but there was when i first wrote the article and this was 12 years ago mm-hmm. there was all this outrage about it and you know people were coming out and saying it's a crutch you know we need to test all musicians and make sure they're not taking this and i'm like well how about the people who need it's sort of a wonder drug for people with oh it circulatory really problems oh well i mean i don't know why it's a wonder drug for performers. I mean, yeah. So you, you have somebody uh, that performs at a has a tremendous aptitude and performs at a very high level, and they're debilitated by this problem for whatever reason. You know, it's probably because of your childhood, or you have these <laughs> expectations about having. Glenn to... Gould could have used it for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And what a what a great thing that would that is. I mean, it is. It is a great thing for a lot of people, and I'm not shy about talking about it. I'm I'm wondering. Because is it because well, uh, classical musicians, like you mentioned in the book, are are supposed to be superhuman and they're seen that way? I sort of. Is I that think part so. of it? If you it's if you go kryptonite. back on Amazon and look at some of the very first reviews, people are saying these hilarious things like, "If I'd known musicians were taking beta blockers and behaving this way and having sex, I'll never go to a concert again." Really? Yeah, I mean, really funny stuff. It's like they need uh, <laughs> the general public needs classical musicians to to be a certain thing for them. Yeah, and I think the the show, the Mozart in the Jungle show on Amazon, has yeah. completely dis- demystified that, and people don't even realize they're getting classical music, and then they think, oh, I want to go back and see that scene again because the music was so good. What so there hasn't that? been any backlash uh, from the TV show, like there, there was, was for a, the book. There was at the very beginning. You know, there was a lot of why don't they get these people coaches? You would not believe. Oh, how you many mean the comments from classical yeah. musicians? But, but there, but there isn't anything about the. The, the sex part of it or the drug part of it or any of that stuff. It just seems natural now that it's on TV and yeah, not in a book. Yeah, you know, that that they're, the show is so good. And it's it's really, I mean, Amazon, because I was there recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, they're just obviously very proud of it and all over the lobby. Rightly there, so. There's a... all sorts of Mozart paraphernalia that have been things that have been on the set and yeah. the trophies from, from the Globes and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Emmys are coming up, so I think, you know, we're certainly under consideration for that. We're the royal we. They are under consideration. And are um, you? They shoot mostly in New York, yeah. Yeah, they shoot. They shot a little in Mexico last year. Mm-hmm. And although, do I, you go along with them? I went to I went to Mexico City. I'd never been to Mexico before, oh, and it was fun nice. being there with Gael. Yeah. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he was so proud of the whole thing, and he'd walk around the neighborhood. It was at the Palacio. Bellas Artes, yeah. Uh-huh. I don't speak Spanish at uh-huh. all. Uh-huh. But, you know, he would walk around the block and people would go, oh, look, it's Kyle Garcia Bernal. That's so nice. Um, but they're shooting, I, I I just found out where, but I can't say. Uh-huh. They're shooting in Europe this summer. Uh-huh. They've, and go, they've announced that. Uh, well, I, I hope to if I yeah. can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you, I mean, do you have kind of carte blanche? When Can you just show up whenever you'd like? Yeah. Or, I just, God, um, oh my God, that's so... No, they've been, they're not usually this nice to the author. Yeah. Um, and I make sure I stay out of the way because... Of course. It, yeah. You know, I'm not going to tell the couple it's how to do anything. Of course. Um, but they've been super nice to me. And, nice to work with? Oh, totally great. And, you know, I'm invited to all the parties and it's just been, they've been really above board in a way that doesn't usually happen in Hollywood. That's unbelievable. Some of my friends have been in this position, and 
you know, just banned from the set. Yeah, they look they hate writers. Yeah. Yeah. That's why that's why I ask. Um I've always had a I love Jason Schwartzman. I mean ever Me since too. Rushmore. I mean he's like he's one of my favorite actors. He's he's such a great guy. Yeah, and he's on the show as a as a he's, podcaster, isn't yes, he? Yes, his name is Bradford Sharp. B <laughs> <D> Sharp. <laughs> <laughs> Did you how much input do you have on those things? Did you come up with any of that or no? No. No, they, no, no. So all have, the writing is done they by actually the people. had a I think I would really get in the way because I'd just be thinking of my own life 20 years ago and that's not what I mean they took various scenes and story arcs and characters yeah. and even named some of them the same from the book yeah but now it's taking on a life of its own and do you miss that at all being being in New York and, and playing in Broadway and a, a little bit I mean when I'm in New York um, you, you have some nostalgia for it still yeah, I mean, it's it's fun because so many of my friends are still there. And the New York Philharmonic is very friendly to me now. I just saw them when they were out here. And, you know, everybody sees me backstage. They were cautious when the show first came out because it's obviously kind of patterned yeah. on a version of them. It's weird that you have take flack here in Los Angeles, but the people that you wrote about are seem to be fine about you now. Well, a few people, there are a few people I wouldn't want to run into in between shows, Broadway yeah. shows. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I haven't. And, you know, we've all aged and I because people don't see me every day I could probably just pretend like I didn't hear my name <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. and do you get back to New York very often or I've been going once or twice a year because of the show yeah uh-huh just not not because they need me or anything I just I just like to watch <laughs> yeah that's fantastic no it's the first time um I pulled up to the set and you know they sent a car service and everything it's I so know. fancy yeah. yeah yeah uh so they were shooting at the State University of New York at Purchase which has their there's a lot of recording. It's a great, yeah, yeah, it's great, a great space. Hall. Mm -hmm. They have a fantastic organ. It's super quiet. There's no subway noise like anywhere in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And even Carnegie Hall. I was surprised subway. to read about Carnegie Hall in your book. Yeah, that, you, that you can't noise. use it as a, as a performance, as a as a recording venue. Well, you can, but there is subway noise. So, God, you know, it is a problem. Like if when you're at a concert there, you'll notice it if you keep an ear out for it. And I, I like the part about the RCA studio. Did they did they end up raising it? Did it end up going? No, now it's Steinway. Oh, it's it was the Steinway. Saved. It's the Steinway showroom now. I see. No, it's in a big office building. So they weren't, it was made they into the IRS office for a while. Got it. It was just no longer a recording space. Right, and it was a great recording space. Yeah, that's what I gathered, like the recording space. It really town. was. But when we pulled up to the set, you know, I've, I've seen sets, of course, in LA. Yeah. But, you know, there were trailers and trailers and trailers and, you know, famous people and like, hundred stagehands and craft services with yeah. all this It's intoxicating, food. isn't it? I was just, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then they, they hired two amateur orchestras and a handful of my friends who are professionals who wanted to do it to be in the on-screen orchestra. Mm -hmm. And everybody was, they have this huge holding area there, which also makes it a good space. So all these audience extras and, you know, everybody's chowing down on the great food that the Coppola's provided and the musicians are playing chamber music for fun. It was just such a happy little scene. That is so nice. It I mean, really it's was that, fun. that's the thing that people think about, right? When they think of classical musicians, they just sit around and start a quartet and have some nice food, and that's our lives. But I but, mean, sometimes they were there for an hour. Sometimes they were there for fourteen hours. Yeah. So you have to entertain yourself somehow. No, that's true. I d it's uh, I'm always amazed at the money that is spent, um, even on music, even in this town. Despite the fact that you know, going back to the recording studio that's no longer there in New York, which is happening here. You know, lots of sound yeah. stages are not even operating these very famous sound stages, um, which is a real shame. 
What that's another thing I wanted to ask you. What do you think about um, the exporting of work for studio musicians, which is a real it seems like a, it's a real problem. Do you think it's just a function of competition or is it a fault of the unions or what, what's, what's your take well, on I, that? I don't want to say it's the fault of the unions, but, mm -hmm. but it is tied to, you know, union contracts. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't want to give up back payments, residuals, any yeah. more than anybody else. But if they have the option of not paying residuals, if they uh, record the music in Bratislava or or, or even or Abbey Road, I mean, anyway. Yeah. Or Canada, mm -hmm. or actually Seattle. So with something like, for instance, I played, I recorded Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. I still get a pretty nice check every year from that. Mm -hmm. If they'd recorded it somewhere else, uh, they wouldn't have to pay that. Yeah. But then the, I mean, I guess the other side of the coin is, would you rather take triple scale for a project or nothing at all? Yeah, I know. And the problem here, of course, I'm not really involved in it yeah. here, but just my observations have been that there's about enough need for one orchestra full of people, and then there's like tons of people roaming around with without any work. And yeah, I mean, since since the since the advent of electronic communication and the internet, and uh, you know, how do you set up a microphone array? How do you do all these things? Those things aren't secret, and they're not they're not held by Hollywood anymore. I mean, you can have yeah. a Hollywood sound coming out of Estonia now. Well, a lot of the recording for my show for the smaller things like mm -hmm. the the fun spin the bottle game mm -hmm. was done in the composer's house yeah you know with a computer like this yeah very yeah. easy yeah a friend of mine who who does uh i don't know if you know jeff beal he does the music for house of cards he's he does, probably a facebook friend <laughs> he does everything in his in his living room yeah i it's went so to a easy. string session and he had 25 strings in his living room oh and wow a computer and it went right into his studio and he had to walk you know 15 feet to master it I mean yeah. it's you don't have to do that anymore I guess and and he could really do that anywhere I of mean course, yeah. a, a friend of mine who does uh, the video games and film trailer music he he hires orchestras overseas and does it by Facebook basically not Facebook like uh, FaceTime you know I mean it's all right. live on computer and it's just being piped in from 10,000 miles away or whatever yeah, I met, I met, I think it was David Bowie's drummer mm -hmm. in a hotel bar, mm -hmm. and he said he had to go upstairs and email him a file for a recording. <laughs> yeah. Like, and Just this like was that. years ago. This was maybe 20 years ago. I thought, wow, this is really yeah, going yeah, in yeah. an amazing direction. Yeah. So when the show started, did you have any input as to the who the characters were and how they related to the book? No. None, none, none of that they stuff. They actually hired a a very large writer's room they hired 10 writers and wow. they had a writer's room that went all summer the first summer before they started shooting mm -hmm. um two of them were musicians mm -hmm. uh one of them was jason's half brother mm -hmm. um so i i came once i stopped in i finally uh, met the showrunner mm -hmm. and i took my oboe and a lot of oboe detritus for them to look at and yeah. everybody took selfies with the oboe and yeah, I played yeah. it a little bit do all oboists make their own reeds? Yeah. You can't just buy reeds off the shelf. Well, show. you kind of can, but you have to know a guy who knows a guy. Really? Because it, they're just very hard to make. They wear out quickly. It's not economically advantageous for anybody to make them for somebody else. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and do you have to... I don't know anything about the oboe. So let's say you're playing in, in the New York Phil. Is it common to use a new oboe every concert? I mean, a new reed every concert? Well... How, uh, how long do reeds last, for instance? Well, it depends. I can make them last for a very long time really? at this point, <laughs> but they don't sound great. Um, so my friend, 
who plays associate principal oboe in the Philharmonic, has this whole routine going where she goes through four reads in a week. So they have four rehearsals and four performances. I mean, these are things that are hundreds of millimeters thin. They're really thin. I should have brought one with me. I know. I'd really like to see that. Yeah. Uh, well, you can look it up on the on the internet. Yeah, There's all it's kinds not of, the same. Yeah, I want to see the pro. But doing. they're really thin, so they they wear out. And remember, you're blowing saliva through it. Yeah, so it's all kinds of yeah, it's, it's being yeah, yucky it's being stuff. digested. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or as one of my first teachers said, jungle rot. <laughs> wow. Um, so I actually, for the most part, buy reads from s- this trusted oh, person, and I have for years now. But I, you know, I always have my knife with me and can fix them up. I could, in an emergency, make something that would play, but I don't really, I'm sort of out of practice for doing that because it's so time consuming. Yeah, so for this, yeah, I was going to say that must take half of your time as a, as an oboist, just making reads. Way more than half your time. Really? Yeah, like the week of my debut recital, I think I spent 60 hours and I didn't really have anything decent. So do you think that, I mean, after you learn that you're actually an extrovert, can you trace that can you trace some of your misery back to the fact that you were isolated making reads for most of your life and not knowing that you should have been out uh, with other people? Well, that's what they said at the aptitude testing place. And I think they were right. They said they see this in musicians all the time Mm -hmm. that performing classical performing artists are replicating somebody else's creative process. And you're just sitting there all by yourself. And even when you're in an orchestra, you're kind of all by yourself. Although a tour is the wonderful exception to that. That's right. That's why things go so haywire and crazy between people on tour. (laughs) They finally get to act it out. They pointed out the two exceptions to that are composition and conducting where you are creative. Um, So because from an early, because I played the piano from the age of four. I see. uh, You are trying... Ah, the police finally found me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You're, you know, you're playing scales. You're doing all of this unnatural stuff for a five-year-old kid. Yeah. You're just, you know, you get uh, into this rote system. That's right. And you don't realize what you like and what you don't like because you're just used to doing what you have to do to not embarrass yourself. That's kind of what's happened to me. I I, uh, am very extroverted and I'm very creative. And I just realized uh, in the last 10 years or so that I I really don't have that in music. Like you said, you you just interpret things that are a couple hundred years old. Right. Um, And my best friend is a composer. And he and I have always had so much in common, but we don't express ourselves the same way professionally. And he, he gets to just create all day long and do all sorts of really interesting things. Um, and I think that's where where I am now, very much like where you were when you found out uh, about w- why you've been so crabby. <laughs> you know. And I think that's what this podcast is. I get to meet people and I get to um, create something. I created a theme song, which I've never done before, those types of things. Yeah. Um, and I'm really finding it rewarding. One thing in Los Angeles that's very different from New York is that you nobody seems to want to pigeonhole you into being just this one profession, and so people are free to go out and try all of these different things. Fact, yeah, and it's no people don't raise a, a brow about it. Yeah. yeah. Whereas in New York, if you even you know try one thing outside of being an oboe player, people are like, "What are you giving up?" Why <laughs> is that? Why do you think? I don't because know. the struggle is so difficult in New York. It just that living there is hard, and getting there is hard, and staying there is hard. Is that part of it? I have no idea, but I think people. It's such a small 
world and everybody knows each other. Mm-hmm. And I think people just get into a, a groove of doing one thing and it's mm-hmm. been that way. Because mm-hmm. it was, it has been, po- New York was one of the only places until before the 60s where you actually could put together a, a full-time living as a freelance musician. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's a, Maybe it's less transient too. You know, in LA people come in and out yeah all the time which lends itself to a more casual uh, idea of i think what that's we do. true um anyway what i was just saying i wanted to mention one of the main reasons i was attracted to writing this book and it did start in a magazine writing class at stanford mm-hmm. i learned this one factoid that just blew my mind hmm. which is that there was no full-time orchestra in the united states until 1964. so people acted like you know in the 70s everything was going to hell in a handbasket, but indeed it, it was just getting started. Yeah, the New York Philharmonic was the first fifty-two week orchestra in America, followed by the Boston Symphony the next year. Really? Yeah. No, it was. Uh, now yeah. every now every major city has at least one. Yeah, definitely, and I think the the two most creative maverick orchestras at the moment are L.A., especially in San Francisco. Yeah, I'm so people thrilled. People on the East Coast just. Can't stand Don't, it. Can't stand it. <laughs> I, can't, I, I'm, I feel so lucky. You know, whenever I grouse about what I do, and and it's really, it's not so much the job because I, I honestly love the job. I, the, the administration at LA Opera, the the level of musicianship and musicality, is really thrilling. I, I don't even mean to qualify it by saying even as an as a chorister because we're frankly one of the finest choruses in in America opera choruses and most of us sing with a master chorale as -hmm. well which is probably the premier chorus in the country uh, chorale in the country choir Um, and every time I park at Disney Hall even even though I've been doing it for 11 years you know I come out now and there's the new Broad Museum Mocha's across the street Colburn's across the street I walk past this beautiful steel building it's amazing. And walk over to this magnificent music center where the Amundsen and the Dorothy Chandler. And I still, to this day, 11 years later, think, wow, I'm, I mean, I'm pretty lucky. And I can support my family. My wife doesn't have to work. I, I somehow have pieced together a career in a town that really isn't known for classical music. And I think Dudamel, well, first Asapeka and then Dudamel have really yeah. elevated this, this town. Well, Deborah Borda, the CEO, I think is responsible for a good bit of that mm-hmm. she's the one who identified Dudamel very early on and she was just hot to get him here oh it's, it's really and, something yeah and grant grant gershon too with la master corral yeah uh, and having conlon here uh, it's uh and it's funny because the architects the since i've lived here the architecture of that of those two square blocks has come to mirror the excellence of the art that, that they're producing and yeah. so now we have people coming just to see the damn buildings much less the you know the art itself yeah so it's great and i'm really looking forward to hearing about your next concert oh yeah i'm really looking forward to it one of the fun things about it is that i'll know a few people there mm-hmm. so it'll be a little bit of a reunion well better than that yeah uh almost everybody else who's playing is a facebook friend i haven't met oh that's great <laughs> yeah because i have I don't know, 4,000 Facebook friends or something. Yeah. Well, I find your story really inspirational. And uh, being the type of person myself who likes to try new things and isn't afraid of changing careers, it's nice to meet somebody who feels the same way and has been successful at doing it. I just couldn't imagine spending the rest of my life playing the Saigon over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
well. That's great. It's a great job. Of course. Don't get me wrong, but it, you know. Of course. You and some it. people are suited for it. Some people, I know people who just, I don't know. I don't know what, why, what, why we're different that way. Honestly, maybe it's just our personalities or our interests are more varied, or I don't know. Well, it's a great. A lot of the people who are happiest on Broadway had small children and they had a spouse who had a day job. Mm-hmm. So they never needed a babysitter. Mm-hmm. They had plenty of income. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones Stability. who didn't ever take off because mm-hmm. you're allowed to take off uh, with pay three, what was it again? Three weeks out of the year. Mm-hmm. And then you can take off without pay 50% of the time. I mean, so it's, it's a sweet gig. It's a great gig. It yeah. really is. Yeah. And for the right people. Yeah. Um, Unless you're sitting next to somebody unpleasant. Yeah, well, we've all had that for sure. (laughs) Or working with conductors that you can't stand. Yes. (laughs) Uh, I've had that too. You know, I worked with one of the most famous uh, conductors who single-handedly, along with two very famous people, resurrected the Belcanto repertoire in opera uh, on London. And this uh, man came to Opera Pacific when I was singing there in college. I was so excited to work with him. He, He had... Uh, been alongside the most famous soprano and the most famous tenor of all time in the history besides Caruso and I thought oh my god I'm going to get to work with this guy I just can't believe it you know we're doing Daughter of the Regiment and it's just going to be unbelievable and he came in and he was so nonplussed about the whole thing he sat down on this stool for our first rehearsal took out a, a number two yellow Ticonderoga pencil and started conducting with it with his two hands as if he was like barely scratching his cat who was sitting on his lap <laughs> and I thought Jesus Christ you've got to be kidding yeah and he berated the tenor and sent the tenor off crying and stopped the show and the director had a meltdown it's like my second professional show ever and I thought oh my god what am I gonna do with this so there are definitely exceptions yeah uh, to the great things about this job but I'm at the point now where um, you know I'm not in the kind of absolute state of finesse that I was back way back in the day when I was sure. playing all day long sure. every day but you know I, I've played the thing for so long uh, I'm really looking forward to is this it like kind an old of, friend in a way to yeah it is and I'm looking forward to just going and playing these extremely familiar pieces yeah um, with a great pianist and great other musicians and just low stress having fun for once yeah the low stress low pressure well there might be some enderol involved <laughs> 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 oh speaking of enderol well before we go um I just did a podcast, strangely, with Dr. Travis Stork from uh-huh. TV's The Doctors. Okay. That was nice. Yeah. Being a handsome man. <laughs> but we, um, the podcaster was, was great, and she, Elizabeth Alfano, and she started out by saying, well, now that I've read both your books, it seems like you have a lot about drugs in common. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So we launched into this discussion of Enderol, and he was, you know, he's a big fan of it, and he had said he had taken it for speaking engagements of early course. on. And surgeons take it to keep their hands from shaking. Of course. Why wouldn't you? Especially yeah. when there really is no downside to it. There really isn't. I mean, it's been a great thing for me. I haven't had a, a cardiac episode in a couple of years. And yeah. I'm much calmer generally. And uh, I, I have a bit of a hot temper sometimes. And it helps with that. It's, yeah. it, I've, it's been great. Well, when it, I think it came out in 1965. Because mm-hmm. I, I read all. I went to the medical libraries and read everything mm-hmm. I could find. And it really was touted as this wonderful cardiac drug that mm-hmm. was saving a lot of lives. For sure. So that musicians made this big stink out uh, out of the whole thing was I've, kind of funny. And yeah, I've got an excuse, so I've got the best of both worlds. I don't have to make. It's even restricted for certain Olympic sports, though, because you can for somebody like an archer, where you need oh to shoot God, in between sure. heartbeats, you 
that you can't have it in your it's, system. It is strange, you know, the first time I took it because I'd been so, I, I very fortunately had already come to the conclusion that I could perform at a very high level despite my nerves. And I think that's very, that's a very important place to get to as a performer where you can say, okay, because I spent years trying to make myself unnervous, right? which makes it so much worse because yeah. of course you can't, you can't control adrenaline don't, don't think of and cortisol. Elephants. No, you can't. Yeah. You, it's nothing you can do can, at least for me, I couldn't calm myself down. So I finally did come to the conclusion that I, I would address the fact that I am nervous, that I am shaking, that my legs are sweating, that yeah. my breathing is high. But when I step out on stage, I'll probably still feel the same, but I, I can still do this at a high enough level to get paid. Yeah. And that was a good thing. So the beta blockers were just like the icing on the cake for me because when it's the strangest thing, you know, you take it and suddenly I didn't have to recognize that I was nervous. I literally, I, my brain said, you should be nervous, but my body said, you're not nervous because yeah. you, you just don't produce adrenaline. Uh, the first time I took it, it was for an audition for Marlboro Music School. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had taken that audition the pr- two previous years. So somebody gave me 10 milligrams of Enderol, which is a very small dose. Mm-hmm. Like my mother takes 320 milligrams oh a God. day. Holy cow. Um, so I, I went into the room and I was still, I was like, this thing doesn't work at all. I'm totally nervous. And then I started playing and everything worked. I yeah. Was just, it just doesn't and your affect present? your cognition. Yeah, you're totally, I, I mean, oh my God, I had this audition for LA Opera where I took the wrong medication and I had ended up, because before I was on beta blockers, I had a prescription for Xanax. Okay. And I had a loose um, Valium well, People do around. use that for stage fright too. Yeah. It's, I've never tried it. Well, I'll tell you, I accidentally took the Xanax and the, Okay. Uh, I took them both thinking that one was a steroid. Did you just steroid. Take, a, take a nap? Well, no, what, <laughs> I, I got to the audition and I was singing Candide of all things. Uh, and I started singing and I just forgot the words. I just forgot yeah. what I was doing. So uh, for the people out there using Xanax and <laughs> benzodiazepines, it, yeah, it's not so great. Well, the article's on my website, BlairTendall.com. Okay. So you can read it on there. I can't wait. <laughs> Blair, it's been great having you. Oh, I really appreciate it. And I sure hope we can get a follow-up because you're a terrific guest. Well, thanks. Thanks yeah. a lot. And there you have it. Pretty great, right? I want to thank Blair for coming all the way over and having a nice conversation with me here in the studio. And I also want to thank my friend and colleague at the Los Angeles Opera, Jamie Chamberlain. She's the one that introduced us. So thanks, Jamie. And I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Genius, get on to my show.